Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows that nature is a queer icon. Today we have Bianca, Laura, Julia, Kellen, and Zoe. And today's episode is about the connections between queerness and environmental justice. Um, we've already done episodes in the past related to this topic, including episodes about eco-socialism and environmental justice and COVID. So you can go back and listen to those as well. But today's episode focuses on environmental justice from specifically a queer lens. And discussing this topic with us is my very good friend, Ashia. And we're all very glad to have you on. Yay. So, um, welcome. Welcome. Uh, feel free to introduce yourself in whatever ways you feel comfortable doing so. Wow. Thank y'all so much for having me. I'm Ashia. Um, my pronouns are they, she. I'm a Gemini, but don't hold that against me. I know, I know, I know. I feel like I have to I have to let people know ahead of time so they know what they're getting into. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. That's great. <laughs> and I love I love the environment and I'm I'm super excited to just be talking about the intersection between queerness and environmentalism. Just really quick as a follow-up to uh, yourself, did you study environmental science or anything like that? Or like I guess like Yeah. Sorry, I'm really bad at introductions. Um, we all I, are. Uh, the Gemini thing was the most important, so yeah, you nailed true, it. True. Yeah, I had to get that out of the way. Um, <laughs> I, I went to um, Yale University for undergrad, and I majored in environmental studies, and I specifically did a concentration in environmental justice and food rights, so looking specifically at who has access to food, why do they have access to food, um, food systems, thinking about food sovereignty, what it means to um, direct. And um, I, I don't like really like using the, the concept of ownership, but to really own um, and to be a driving force behind um, what food goes where and how food is grown. Um, and like once I graduated, um, I started doing like more kind of like environmental poetry, really like thinking about like my environmental background and, and, and the storytelling background and the storytelling tradition that's so popular um, in a lot of black diasporas. Um, and then within that, I started thinking about queerness and environmentalism. Um, and I was really lucky enough to have a professor um, who just talked a lot about the contributions of the LGBTQ community to environmentalism, to the way that we think about ecology. Um, and so now here I am back at Yale um, doing a master's program where I will be kind of just like vetting that um, those intersections a little bit more of environmental justice, queerness, and Black liberation. That's amazing. Hell, yes. Awesome. Yeah, I wanted to start out by asking just what, since this episode is about environmental justice, like what does environmental justice mean to you? How do you define it? Yeah, um, so at least for me, like thinking in my own personal life, we're given kind of like these broad definitions of what justice looks like, what environmentalism looks like, um, and what environmental justice, like, you know, just as like the general concept looks like. Um, but when I think about what it means for me personally, um, I think of the quote, and I'm, I'm totally forgetting who said it, um, but something along the lines of uh, justice is like, is love embodied. Um, and so I, th I like to think of environmental justice, not as sort of this recognizing that there are certain environmental harms that are in predominantly black or predominantly um, brown neighborhoods, um, but thinking about the transformation of these places and thinking about the transformations of these neighborhoods that are led by the people who are most impacted um, and who are most vulnerable to these environmental harms um, and really transforming them into something uh, that is equitable um, and uh, revolutionary um, and does away with this concept of environmental harm entirely. Mm. Ooh, wow, uh, goosebumps. <laughs> um, yeah, I so I know that we are focusing on the intersections of queerness and environmental justice, but I think for me it, it feels important to also start out by acknowledging the way that capitalism as we know it really was born in a big way um, 
out of how blackness was criminalized and how indigenous and black folks were enslaved and that being deeply tied to resource extraction by white colonial shitheads. Um, There's just a ton of documentation tying together the degradation of the environment and the exploitation and enslavement of black and indigenous people as early as the 1600s. And of course, that's also intuitive, you know, when we think about I just think, like, as leftists, we need to understand, like, the, you know, the way that the Marxist bro is going to even also talk about this or whatever, you know, like, like, thinking about how these things are combined. Um, And obviously, the ways that these things are tied now is deeply related to redlining, pollution, and other environmental racism issues related to extraction and health, which I know Julia was going to get into as well. Yeah, I just wanted to give our listeners a brief refresher on the concept of environmental racism, which I know is something we've talked about before, but for anyone who hasn't listened to previous episodes on it. um, So historically, there are these two fields, urban planning and public health, and they were tied very closely together. Um, Basically, the idea is that things like access to outdoor space and clean streets can really impact your life and improve your health. Um, And that idea is actually pretty old, but historically it was kind of only applied to wealthy and white neighborhoods. Um, So wealthier, whiter neighborhoods were designed to be as healthy as possible with access to outdoor space, parks, um, you know, things like this. And basically neighborhoods that were where black and brown folks were living were not designed that way, or black and brown folks were forced into living in areas that already had environmental hazards in them. Um, Basically anything that's less desirable environmentally, um, also with less safe housing, like mold, lead paint, asbestos, um, these types of things. Um, And then sort of looking more towards the modern day, everything from like freeways um, to toxic chemical plants have tended to be built in neighborhoods of color and poorer neighborhoods. Um, And something that I didn't know that I learned while I was researching this episode is that also historically gay and queer neighborhoods have experienced similar types of things where they tend to have also worse environmental factors nearby them. Um, And that leads to the situation where in some of these neighborhoods currently, there are still queer folks with, you know, living with more pollutants. um, And those factors can show up in queer people being more at risk for things like Mm -hmm. asthma and other environmental health hazards. Yeah, totally. And like, I was thinking about this and another way that I think it can show up is that like members of the LGBTQ community are much more likely to face housing insecurity than cishet people. Um, And so when you think about natural disasters, for example, or even more sort of quotidian weather events like snowstorms, the people most at risk are housing insecure and unhoused people. And when you add to that, the way that shelters, for example, are able to and frequently do discriminate against people who appear gender non-conforming or quote-unquote visibly queer, whatever that means. Like, this happens, especially with shelters, by the way, who are, that are run by religious organizations. You can see how environmental events like heat waves or heavy rain or snow can become deadly very quickly. And that's a burden that is borne disproportionately by LGBTQ people, just like it's borne disproportionately by people with mental illnesses and people of color, basically by people who are at the intersections of society that are most likely to be unhoused. So that's, like, that's another way that this, this plays out. Yeah, thank you both so much for laying out those connections. I think everything that everyone has said has kind of made it clear what the, I guess, interconnectedness between these two issues, queerness and, envir- and environmental justice are. So I think like within the larger framework of seeking liberation for marginalized people, like as people have been saying, systems that create environmental harm disproportionately inflict that harm on the environments in which marginalized people like black and brown, queer and trans people live. And so um, then the issue of environmental justice inherently becomes an issue of queer liberation. So I guess a question for you is, do you have any thoughts on how environmental justice and queerness are interwoven? Yeah, I was just thinking about um, a little bit of what um, Julia and Kellen were talking about earlier. And I just like, I think about um, the history of, of removal and expulsion and, and the violent um, degradation specifically of, of 
neighborhoods of color and of LGBTQ neighborhoods um, and just thinking how hateful you gotta be if we like create a space for us where y'all don't even have to like exist in and y'all still wanna come in <laughs> and mess with our stuff, wild, it's a sickness. Um, but actually just like thinking about um, the connection between EJ and queerness. When you look at the history of queer ecology, when you look at the history of queer environmentalisms, um, which actually have like a really long history dating back to the early 1900s. And I would even argue beyond that, um, when I'm using this sort of like early 1900s reference, I'm really talking about queer ecology from, yeah, I guess I would say like a more kind of like Western understanding of what queerness means, um, a Western white understanding, literary understanding of what queer means. Um, but let's just like, you know, like kind of like take that starting point um, for just like um, in, intents and purposes of the conversation. Um, and just think about how queerness extends beyond the sexual and operates really as a political and a, and a relational framework. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that sexual, that the sexual isn't inherently political because I 100% believe that it is. But queer theory requires us to think deeply about the ways in which we approach kinship and familiar relation. And for me, that looks like, you know, queerness is most apparent in environmental justice and like what I was talking about a little bit earlier and that justice is love embodied. Environmental justice not only means righting the environmental wrongs that have been done to vulnerable populations, but creating a framework where these wrongs don't occur in our imagined future. And I think um, a lot of us as little queer babies, and even if we really didn't come into our queerness or our identity later in life, um, a lot of us have, have almost existed in this world of imagination because the world as we know it right now um, really holds no space for us. Um, and yeah. so we have ha constantly had to imagine what a future would look like, or we constantly would have to imagine what a world where queerness um, was not not just like tolerated, but but um, celebrated um, and, and loved openly um, what that looks like. And that's something that we've been doing since we were young, um, because that's really like the only kind of safe place that we had was in our own heads. Um, so we have, um, I think, um, through an unfortunate amount of trauma and an unfortunate amount of um, societal exclusion, um, really vast um, imaginations and vast capability for um, imaginary. Um, Loba, a queer brown LA-based herbalist that I admire, um, wrote a post a little while ago that was just um, very, very beautiful. It went queer as an alchemy. We have conjured family and found children in puppies and kittens, parents in trees and earth, and ancestors in fungi and seeds. And I think that that kind of harkens back to this sort of um, queer ecological idea that we are all interconnected. We're all tied together inextricably reliant on each other for symbiosis and growth. Um, I would argue that queerness is unequivocally care oriented. Um, before colonization in many North American indigenous and indigenous African cultures, queer people and specifically trans people were considered stewards of the earth. They were continued, considered um, uh, spiritual guides, um, connections to the spirit world. And that's not to like mythologize queerness or transness, but to just kind of like contextualize how important we were and how important we continue to be um, in creating those connections between the earth um, and between spirit. And even now, um, studies have shown, and I, and I think a recent study came out in 2018, um, have shown that compared to straight people, queer people are more likely to hold environmentalist views. And I think a part of that is because we understand our society as an extractivist force because mm. we have more witness mm. or have been victims of that extraction. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Totally. I love that quote you shared from Loba, especially yeah. the fungi part, because I love mushrooms and I'm very inspired yes. by how many genders they have. Yes. <laughs> so I love that. Wait, have um, you watched Star Trek Discovery? No. Okay. So Is it mushroom related? Yes. Like it's basically like the, un like it's extremely mushroom and universe related. You see, like, they travel, they like basically time travel through the like mycelial force of mushrooms. Whoa, I love that. I've it's like a contentious it Star Trek, so don't at me, but it, it's about mushrooms and it's a very, it's a very <laughs> okay. magical experience. Um, if you're a Star Trek fan and you hate Discovery, I'm, I don't really care. So <laughs> <laughs> I support that. Um, but yes, any mushroom lovers should watch it. <laughs> yes, mushrooms are amazing. Um, I I guess just thinking about other like good quotes about queerness and environmentalism, I wanted to bring up this thing that um, a queer activist friend of mine said to me a while ago that I loved, which is Mother Nature is inherently queer. 
Um, I feel like a lot of times queer and especially trans bodies are considered, heavy air quotes here, unnatural. Um, and I think for me personally, like my reaction to that is often to be like, we don't have to be natural, fuck nature, like fuck things being natural, which I think part of that is like, does sort of feel true to me. Like people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies as long as it's not hurting anyone else and it doesn't need to fit into anyone else's idea of what is right or natural. Um, but I think in another sense and kind of what I took away from this idea that mother nature is queer is that all human bodies are natural in the sense that they come from nature um, and cis straight people don't have more of a claim to nature and the environment than trans and queer people do. Um, and that's something like really powerful that I took away from that. I guess I'm curious, Ashia or anyone else, if you have experiences like that where environmental activism felt very explicitly queer affirming or where queer liberation work has felt very specifically tied to the environment. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I remember, so I, I've been doing poetry, like slam poetry, specifically spoken word poetry. Um, since I was like 15, 16. Um, and I, I've, I've known, um, or, you know, in some sort of idea knew that I was not straight from like, probably like eighth grade, you know, when you have like those crushes or not even crushes, but you have those friendships that like obsessions, mm, they're a little too friendly, <laughs> you know, they're a little too friendly and you're like trying to wear your feelings. Oh, we all um, know about yeah, that. Yes. Like, I've never related to something more. <laughs> Preaching to the literal yeah. choir right now. Culminating yes. <laughs> in a huge, big blowout. Um, very dramatic. Um, yes, we're still cool. She oh lives down the block from me. Um, I love that. <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, uh, I, I I always had like some you know vague idea that I was queer, but I never really was around very many queer people, and specifically queer elders. Um, and even when I say elders, I don't mean like people who are like in their 60s, 70s, 80s, but I mean someone who was who not my age. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, who went yeah. through the things, you know? Yeah. Um, and really my first introduction to urban gardening was at a black queer led farm in Philly. Mm. Um, and it was just kind of shocking to see how much community could be cultivated in such a small plot. And, and not even to say this, the plot was small, because that, that, that probably wasn't even a garden. I think that was like an urban farm. Um, but to kind of like see the level of care and, and community care specifically for like the youth that came through that space um, was really, really eye-opening. And I think um, kind of looking back on it, that probably is what sparked my fascination um, with food sovereignty. Um, because the, the neighborhood that we were in, we were in North Philly, um, and the neighborhood that we were in um, was, could probably be classified as what some would call a food desert. Um, others might classify it as food apartheid. Um, there's like um, a little bit of contention around the term food desert because mm -hmm. it implies that um, this drought is like naturally occurring, um, which we know it's not. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of like getting off on a tangent here, but that was like really like my first kind of introduction to um, queer people cultivating and connecting to the earth. Um, so I've been very blessed to inhabit spaces that are directed by or facilitated with queer environmentalists in mind. Um, a scholar, Greta Gard, who I admire a lot and who I actually teach um, a little bit of her work whenever I do um, queer environmental poetry workshops, she wrote towards a queer ecofeminism in the 90s. Um, and she was writing specifically about how queer folk experience an othering, um, an othering that I kind of like mentioned earlier, akin to how the earth is othered. Um, and there are like a lot of interesting dualisms at play in her work. Um, Y'all were talking earlier about how queerness is still seen in many ways as quote unquote, you know, the heavy quotes unnatural and needs to be subjugated. Well, you know, oddly enough, US extractivist mentality also sees the earth, which is considered natural as something that needs to be subjugated too. So I think mm. queer people as a whole are really wrestling with these concepts when we talk about environmental history or movements or even really like thinking about the climate crisis that we're in right now. Because when we witness the subjugation or the exploitation of the earth, we feel that pain too because we recognize pillage when we see it. And of course, this is a very narrow subset of environmental activism, unfortunately. Um, I think I've been in a bit of a bubble because I very purposefully sought out queer, black, and brown folk who are doing this work um, because I really have felt no place um, in a lot of like white, um, straight um, environmental groups, unfortunately, whether they were kind of like at the national level or even if they were like kind of 
clubs at my school um, because I think that they're slowly doing it now, but they weren't at the time that I was engaging with them. And, and when I say slowly, I mean like snail's pace, like the earth will be gone by the time that they kind of get it together. Um, but um, I think they're finally coming to grips with the fact that the average environmentalist doesn't look like this straight white dude who wants to go backpacking or whatever. It's the trans Latina or the black lesbian whose environmentalism isn't really about protecting the planet so that we can preserve the world as we know it. Because let's be honest, the world as yes. we know it is poisonous as fuck to marginalize life. Our environmentalisms is, are about shifting dynamics so that humans are re-ingrained into nature in a way that is affirming and healing for all be beings. And really what that would mean is the ultimate collapse of a lot of ways of living that we are currently accustomed to. Um, and I still think that even within the environmental movement, um, so many people are trying to hold on to this capitalist perspective of like, okay, we can like be sustainable, we can um, force renewables, um, we can um, lower our carbon footprint, mm. a term that was coined by an oil company, Exactly, by the way. I was just supposed um, to say that. Uh, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Um, and, 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 and really the, the reckoning that we're doing right now is like, a lot of shit is gonna have to change mm -hmm. in a very rapid amount of time mm. if we are to ever conceive of freedom um, in ways that are actually free. Yes. Oof, yeah, for sure. Um, I just wanted to also make a quick connection between when you were talking about like what, um, you know, in, in the United States, what, what we do as extraction practices and all these things and how like also the United States is so deeply rooted in like the Judeo-Christian origin stories and also like, mm -hmm. just like obviously built on like the Christian mythology in general and in the origin story of, um, like, the Judeo-Christian text, like, there's a lot of language around, like, pillaging and exploitation and it being, like, a God-given right. And also there's obviously a lot of um, things about, like, judgment on different identities and things like that as well. But I just feel like these origin stories in these... Um, these ways that uh, our society becomes really almost what am I trying to say here? I feel like I feel like we take some of this stuff for granted in the sense that like we forget where it comes from. Like we forget that like mm -hmm. because the United States is so wrapped up in a bunch of different mythologies that just have never fucking been true. But a lot of people have just been telling themselves things like, you know, if you work hard, you can achieve anything, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Could I jump in here Please. really quick? It's like Please. interesting that you brought up the origin stories um, because so much of that is how white people interpreted it. If you yeah. look in like the Bible, especially in the New Testament, I, mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of taking a class called Ethics and the Climate Crisis, where we looked at thinking about the climate crisis from a Christian ethic perspective. Um, I, I, I'm, I keep coming back to the word and I can't remember the exact passage, but but basically it's so much contention sparked off around what the word steward meant mm. um and one facet interprets do it as okay humans are not above animals or above nature yes. we are here to help take care of it as it takes care of us and then the colonizer mentality of steward is oh i own all of this like anything mm. that i set foot on becomes mm -hmm. mine and mm -hmm. thus i can do whatever i want with it um and they just kind of like took that concept and ran with it um mm. which is just like beyond me I right, guess people read course. what they want to read and then and, and now here we are today. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think, yeah, it's 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 wild. It's truly wild. The I mean, of course, the people who are interpreting it, the people who had access to being um, literate were the people that were trying to dismantle <laughs> at this point, you know. It's really interesting because I feel like for so much of my experience in environmentalism, I felt really disconnected from both my gender expression and uh my sexuality uh because I was so I mean I went to Ithaca College it's a very freaking white college town and I worked at a bunch of different environmental education organizations afterwards that focused on primarily educating white youth um and I remember being hired and asking, like, if I could 
specifically try to write grants to make our programming free so that we could like do all these other things. But anyway, I think that the one piece of, of my first entryway into environmentalism that was freeing gender wise was about hair. Um, I mean, I grew, I was born in 1990 and I think when I came of age where people start shaving, people were so obsessed with shaving. It was like what people talked about. It was like very, very, um, a part of culture and life, I guess, if you, if you were assigned female at birth and like, yeah, I like begged my mom to let me get a razor when I was like pretty young and she like did not want me to. And any, I don't, I haven't shaved in years, but I did for a while. And yeah, anyway. Totally. I do remember being like, I must start shaving. Exactly. Yeah, same. And so I felt like the environmental kids were the kids that kind of were like, why do we need to do that? We don't need to do that. And so it was like a push against this grain that definitely leaned into um, um, other queer expression. And also, like, I feel like all the, at least a lot of the boys in my program were like the soft boys that I feel like <laughs> are just like, you know. I don't know. Oh my god. Okay. It's definitely like a very like fluid, gentle vibe in that way. (laughs) At least like that was my experience. But I I do have a lot of critiques about the program from a racial um, perspective. But yeah, I think there was some some stuff with queerness in there as well. Yeah, well, I think this is something that like everyone else has like touched on in a way, but I just want to like really... um drive home these ideas of like eco-feminist and eco-socialist thought on the founding that like what brings these things together isn't just being like of marginalized identities but of having the same systems of oppression that are causing all of the um you know marginalization and oppression which of course as always are like patriarchy white supremacy colonialism capitalism and i also think it's um just really important to note. And um, I love to remind class reductionists of this, that um, white supremacy and colonialism are much older concepts than capitalism. Patriarchy is a much older concept than capitalism. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And these things all function together and capitalism functions within those things and around Mm -hmm. those things, but that that's not the sole driving force. Um, And that really ties these things together. And when we're talking about like collective liberation, um, like mother nature, our, our ally and (laughs) our um, comrade mother nature (laughs) is of course like an integral part of the fight for collective liberation, because it's also about having a habitable place to live and more habitable place to live than we have had uh, maybe ever, (laughs) or at least, you know, since the times of colonialism, um, And yeah, I just want to like really drive that home, those connections. Yeah, I think that transitions well into what I want to talk about, which is how environmental justice and queerness are both related to abolition more broadly. And as I was like writing my notes for this episode, I was thinking of this episode of the Intercepted podcast. Um, I do listen to other podcasts, so I'm not expressing disloyalty. I'm just giving credit where credit is due. Oh my Uh, God, there's no loyalty. (laughs) We we know where your allegiance stands first of all, but yeah, okay. (laughs) Of course. Um, But in that episode, uh, there was a guest, we all know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and she was saying how abolition must be both green and red. And she was talking about this concept of organized abandonment, which is kind of her term, um, which she took to mean like this deliberate effort of governments to abandon communities whom they deem not worthy of receiving things like um, reliable sources of income, but also Um, just environmental things like clean water, reasonable air, reliable shelter, and also transportation and communication infrastructure. And so basically all of these environmental necessities. Okay, so then within the framework of organized abandonment, being stripped of these needs then gives rise to the construction of prisons and jails, policing becomes more prevalent. And as we've already talked about those institutions then harm people who have already been marginalized, including queer and trans people and particularly black trans femmes. And a term that's been used to describe this is necropolitics or the ability of the state through policy and budgets to like really decide like who lives and who dies by virtue of who gets affected by the policies that they pass. 
Um, and so, Ashia, did you have any thoughts about how environmental justice and queerness and abolition are all tied together? Yeah, um, I think you like really like like summed up like the really awesome connection between EJ and abolition. Um, and I guess like to just kind of like add on that particular point and that particular connection, um, poverty is environmentally unsound because it creates conditions for exploitation. Um, so when you think about, let's like just like take the example of the great migration um, and um, uh, thinking about just like what labor black people could do, were allowed to do um, after emancipation. A lot of people went to work in the factories. Um, a lot of people went to work in the mines um, because that's the, and, and a lot of people remained in the South as sharecroppers. Being a sharecropper isn't like, isn't like, like, I don't know, hokey pokey, you know, having a good time, like, like calling the earth or whatever, you know, it, it's hard, dangerous labor. Um, and especially like, and when we think about that, the overlap of the green revolution um, with the intensification of agriculture, um, that creates um, just a very toxic environment to be in too. Um, and, and to just think about then the majority of people in prisons are black, brown, indigenous, and poor. Um, and I think it's one thing that I, I think Laura was talking about earlier, um, just about so much how um, uh, class is racialized um, and, and poverty um, is, is racially motivated um, and racially constructed in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of prisons are built on Superfund sites. A lot of prisons are built on um, uh, repurposed um, mining or um, extraction sites. Um, and so it's kind of like that double whammy, that, that insult to injury of like, you're, you're, you're in prison. Well, not, not even double, like triple really. And, and it almost feels like a conspiracy against you really. Um, you're born into this ecologically toxic neighborhood. So you probably have asthma or you probably have lead poisoning or something. You end up going to prison and you end up probably getting sicker in prison um, and then coming back to this neighborhood that is underfunded and underserved. Um, while um, even if the, even if it isn't a private prison, if it is like a, a public prison, um, well, people line their pockets on your exploitation. Um, and so prisons are really kind of like an embodiment, uh, to me at least, of peak capitalist um, um, exploitation. Um, and thinking just a little bit about um, that sort of queer theory, that sort of queer ecology, um, that ethic of care, um, why the heck are we spending so much time um, to house people when we could spend so much time rerouting our resources um, into uh, community care, um, into like the things that Bianca was mentioning um, that Ruth Wilson Gilmore was talking about in the podcast, uh, reliable sources of income, uh, clean air, shelter, mental health services. And so when we look at things from like a queer lens, um, we also look at sort of the violence that happens within prisons against queer people um, and the violence of separating people out by gender um, shows an incredible lack of awareness, um, one of the needs of trans individuals who are currently incarcerated, um, but also seeks to sort of reify this binary of this is where you go um, and this is what you will do and this is what you will eat and we won't help you with any of it. Oh, yeah so intense um yeah i think that is a, a perfect transition into what i wanted to ask you about next though which is um bianca shared with us well a few of your articles but um the one i want to talk about was the um black american bus drivers at risk which is in sierra club which we can also link to in the episode description for people to read um, but yeah, you were talking about the connections between like the current pandemic um, and crisis and the global crisis and how that affects um, like public transportation and specifically black bus drivers as as the headline would suggest. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could kind of uh, give us a little rundown on the connections of those things. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, ooh, I wrote this article, what feels like for ago. This year has felt like the longest thing that I've ever done in my life. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. Um, well, it doesn't have to be specifically what you said in the article, just like, yeah, connections yeah, to what's happening connection. currently, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, so I was thinking really about, um, okay, well, there's this push for public transit um, because, you know, like, we, like, 
in a city like New York, where, where I feel like, like, you know, a couple of you are, it makes absolutely no sense to have a car. Um, and public transportation is one of the ways that people and especially essential workers who cannot afford a car um, get to work. Um, and so it makes really no sense not to redirect funding into public transit and not just like saying, okay, well, we're going to take money from, um, I don't know, street maintenance and shove it into public um, transportation um, without thinking about how public transportation as we know it right now, it's also environmentally um, unhealthy. Um, it's important to think about how we are going to um, impact and transform and change the lives of people who rely on public transportation um, so that they're not dealing with the exhaust, so that they're not dealing with these close quarters, so that they're not dealing with this issue of sanitation, but also so that um, the public transit itself is environmentally friendly and sustainable. And there have been some initiatives. Um, I think that um, COVID in a lot of ways has lit a fire under some people's asses um, to really push for more equitable and more sustainable um, transit. Sucks that it took this um, to get there, but you know what? We make do with what we got. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the climate change diaspora. Um, you know, the kind of one of the ones, at least in the United States, that comes to mind a lot is the the movement of folks who experienced um, Hurricane Katrina and moving from there to, from New Orleans to Houston. Um, and then there was a huge like then. So most people were kind of moved and ended up staying in, in Houston. And then another massive hurricane i can't remember exactly what the name of it was i feel like it was hurricane maria but i can't remember and um a a lot of the folks who had moved to houston from new orleans were in the areas that were also hit the hardest um um and of course we're seeing that you know currently with tropical storm laura and um the california wildfires as well uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what we can do to make these frontline communities safer, given, given the exacerbating nature of climate catastrophe? And I guess, like, to expand it to also an international lens, like, how, how should we, like, move forward with borders, I guess, considering the movement of people due to the climate change catastrophe. Oh, Lord, you could write an entire dissertation <laughs> <laughs> on what you just asked. Woo! That is really the million dollar question, ain't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I read a really poignant article um, that was, uh, oh, thank God. At first I thought it was um, NPR. Thank, only NPR shared it. I have a love-hate relationship with NPR. I want to Relatable. It. Sometimes it really tries my patience. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there, oh, it was NPR. Well, I, my <laughs> friend's ex works there. And so I have a specific NPR vendetta, but it's really just a vendetta against this one man. But, you know, <laughs> that's how it goes. Let's your anger drive you. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, they were talking about um, uh, on the 15th anniversary of Katrina, um, the Lower Ninth Ward residents were pretty much calling on like the New Orleans diaspora to come home. I feel like a lot of people with the capability um, left after the hurricane because they felt like there was really nothing left for them. Um, and you can completely understand why someone would have that mentality um, or, or why um, someone who has lost everything um, might not feel any ties there. Um, and the issue with this fragmentation um, and with this sort of like a geospatial um, yeah, fragmentation is the best word that I can really ascribe to it is that the communities become weaker um, uh, and they have a lot less um, I'm trying to avoid using this term, but I can't really think of a better term for it, but they, they tend to lack bargaining power. Um, and, and, and it's very hard. I think humanity really, really wants, or at least as we know it right now, really, really tries to be individualist driven. Um, oh, I can do this on my own. Um, oh, I only need um, my family members or I only need like a couple friends to keep me going. We need each other to keep mm-hmm. going. 
Um, and so thinking about how we can strengthen communities, um, not just, you know, by, by staying, by remaining, um, but also making the capacity to connect across borders a little bit stronger. Um, and unfortunately, because we live in a capitalistic society, one of the ways that we can bolster the capacity for change and for specifically climate resilience is through money and is through funding um, underfunded communities. Um, I, I think, I don't know if y'all, how many people are on Twitter. We're tweeting away. We're heavily online. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there was like this like um, tweet, I'm gonna totally butcher it, but there's like this tweet going around that was like, um, wild how um, uh, poor people circulate the same $20 around like every month and somehow it keeps us afloat. Um, but it's very that, it's very mutual aid focused. Yes. Um, as we delve deeper and deeper into the climate crisis, I think that we're going to recognize truly how much we need each other, how much we need to pool resources, how much we need to think about our own capacity for resilience. What tools do we as individuals bring to the table? Um, what, do, what tools do we as community members bring to the table so that if there is a flood, um, if there is a mudslide, if there is a fire, um, what, are our, what, what are our capacities to um, help people in the aftermath? Because I think that that's a lot of what it's becoming. Mm, totally. I wanted to ask also just specifically about, I guess, discrimination in parks and nature and outdoor spaces. I was thinking about how, um, I guess, like I was mentioning at the beginning of the episode, there's kind of this history of parks as spaces that were intended only for white and wealthy people. And that's not like quite how most people think of them now, mm. but some of that history is still there um, and still present. Um, I was thinking about incidents like the Barbecue Becky incident that happened mm. um, at Lake Merritt in Oakland, um, and also the Central Park incident that happened recently, where this Black man, Christian Cooper, was birdwatching, and a white woman decided to call the cops on him. Mm. Essentially, like later, it became clear she just was trying to put his life in danger. Um, and I was thinking about just how there are so many of these incidents of both in public space, but also specifically in like natural spaces of black and brown folks facing this kind of violent discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you think that this sort of discrimination manifests differently in nature and parks specifically versus like streets or other sort of urban public spaces. And I don't know if there are any like specific strategies you think we should be using to address racism and or queer phobia in nature and in parks. Mm -hmm. I think in like more concentrated urban areas, uh, white people expect to see black people um, and uh, brown folks. Like mm -hmm. even though like if you're in the city, or if you're in a park, a white lady is going to call the cops on you just because she can. Um, but in some regards, in an urban setting, white people are more, I feel like white people, in white people's imagination, that is where black and brown and indigenous folk belong. Um, or maybe not even indigenous folk because indigenous folk are, are so far out of like the purview of the white imagination. It's, it's not even really funny. Um, uh, white supremacy, not funny. Um, and <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> But in, in, in nature and in parks, I think that there is this very subtle, uh, you know what, I, I don't like using words like subtle to address um, uh, racism because none of it's subtle. Um, but there is like this, I guess, like subconscious or maybe even conscious belief that like black and brown people don't belong here. Like, what are you doing here? Like this, this nature is for me to enjoy. Like if you're here, it's because you must be up to something. Like you must be starting something. You, mm. you must be stealing something. You must be selling drugs. Um, you must be littering or whatever. And I need to take it upon myself, me whitey to look at you and police your behavior and tell you, Oh no, you can't do that. Even if you're just bird watching and minding your business. Um, and I think that's that, that and and I think it's part of that colonial mentality of of seeing yeah. wilderness as something that is for white people and yes. for white people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. 
And I think in terms of specific strategies, um, it really is um, doing that sort of like sitting, sitting with yourself, having that internal conversation of if I see a white person messing with someone who is of color, would I intervene? Would I say, excuse me, like, do you know this person? Like, why are you talking to them like that? Or even if, if you don't want to take on a more confrontational approach, approaching the person of color and just talking to them and being like, hey, are you okay? Do you want to like come with me somewhere? Do you want to like go get some water or whatever and making sure that they're okay? So it's not really like a thing of confrontation. I'm, I'm aside from being a Gemini, I have a Sag moon and rising. So yes. I have no problem. Um, Yay. <laughs> we, like, we've got a, a Sag stellium <laughs> on the call. So hey. yeah, I have oh, five I Sag it. placements. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. I love fire fire is so yes oh yeah it's it's a lot of chaos (laughs) but 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 really like like what do you think some little kids are doing Mm -hmm. why do you feel the need to police and criminalize black and brown youth white kids are just as bad if not worse Mm -hmm. and yet (laughs) you for some reason you find you feel the need from an early age And, and 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 not even thinking just about like the need to police but flipping that and looking that from like a black kid's perspective, how traumatic that is and mm-hmm. the lasting trauma of, of someone threatening to call the cops on you or actually doing it and the cops getting violent with you or you being removed from a place um, purely on suspicion. Um, so I think when we think about like specific tra- strategies, it's making sure that the person, the vulnerable, vulnerable person um, is the person that's being paid attention to um, rather than trying to like videotape or call out um, like the person who is perpetuating the racism. Of course, this may be different for us, um, uh, especially for people who are like assigned female at birth or for trans people, um, intervening might be very dangerous for us. So of course we have to like recognize those boundaries when we intervene, Um, but and this is gonna be, this is gonna be like go against all the, the peace and love that I'm preaching, but they can't beat up both of us. Absolutely true. There's strength in numbers. So <laughs> yeah. So make sure that we're protecting each other. Definitely. Wow. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's like so much good stuff that was said on this episode. I'm just like kind of like reflecting on all of it now. Um, we're kind of at time. So um, I guess before we close out, I wanted to ask if you had any like final thoughts, things you wanted to leave our listeners with. Yeah, I definitely, and this is what I'm, I'm doing my research on um, in grad school, but I definitely think that um, Black and Indigenous-led queer foodways really are the future. Um, food sovereignty, it, to me, is Black liberation, um, is Indigenous sovereignty. Um, land, land back is Indigenous sovereignty. And so I think when we have these conversations about um, what queerness looks like and, and how queerness can thrive is that we need to be the directors of our own future. Um, and we need to look to the people who are kind of already doing the work um, and they're out there um, in your neighborhood, um, in, um, in your city, in your state, um, and you can find them and, and you should connect with them um, because we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, and it's really important now, especially um, to hold each other as much as we can. Yeah. That was so nice. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Well, that was our episode. Thank you, Bianca, for bringing on Ashia, who is now a friend to all of us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> everyone who comes on the podcast is our best friend now. Um, <laughs> if you also enjoyed this episode. If you didn't episode, know and you've been on this podcast, now you know. <laughs> yeah, now you know. You are friends of the pod. Friend. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you also enjoyed this episode, which how could you not have you can give us your money on patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch or season of the bee i don't know it's season of the bitch (laughs) (laughs) no you had it right i'm sorry uh you can follow us on instagram and twitter at season of the bee you can rate review subscribe on itunes you can now find us on what am I saying? Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> That's really, you can now find us on Instagram. And I was like, <laughs> nope. You can find us on Spotify. 
Can you rate things on Spotify? I don't think so. No. You can subscribe. You I can like know. follow or whatever. You can follow. Yeah, you can, yeah. And you fucking right. should. Whatever you can do on Spotify, do it for us. Um, do everything, you- po- all the positive things. <laughs> yes, unless it's bad, then, then don't, don't do it. If you're doing <laughs> a bad thing, don't. what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, such a chaotic outro. Um, we love the, the chaotic outro. <laughs> <laughs> if listeners really listen this far, they get this. Exactly. So true. Yes, thanks for sticking with us. Um, if you really want to stick with us, you can email us at seasonofthebee at at season of the bee. you can email us the email is season of the bee at gmail.com yes, uh if good. you feel the need to email us i don't know it's a personal decision um <laughs> we wouldn't recommend <laughs> Interesting. it no. <laughs> uh, no it's fine we we get some really sweet emails sometimes where people are like i just wanted to let you know that i felt really seen by this episode and i'm just like oh well, so yeah no i also i love email they can email us i'll read them yeah before <laughs> you give us the password i mean we'll yeah. all go in the inbox yes. and read them yes. we i love fan mail there are there are sometimes some exciting emails oh um, my god especially my favorite is this like marketing person who like bought sons sons of the bitch at dot com and keeps trying to sell it to us as if <laughs> we don't need the money that bad it's not even that similar also <laughs> no, it's like very weird and they've emailed multiple times being like do you want to buy this url and it's like for no. what <laughs> no one is like trying to find season of the bitch and is accidentally starting searching for sons Son. <laughs> the worst substitute for that word <laughs> that's so ridiculous oh i think that's all the places you can contact us though um exactly right yeah, yeah that's pretty much it and if you do join the patreon forgot to mention it you can now join our discord channel where you get to talk to us you can join our reading group uh, we talk about it's the most abolition. wholesome place on the internet. It is. We talk it about is. abolition and anti-racism and a bunch of intersections with that. And in the Discord, we talk about literally everything. There's a chance you want a channel for something, it's there. And if it's not, you can ask us, and then it will be there. So, uh, yeah, best place on the internet. That's right. All you have to do is give us your money if you're still listening to this episode honestly <laughs> you clearly really like us and you should just go to the patreon <laughs> you heard it here first therapy boy howling love you background. all oh <laughs> i was trying to get he was like howling before i had to mute but now he's not howling i wanted him to howl as a love you bye well, I was trying to tell you that I love you, but it was interrupted. And so now as a Sag, I can't, I'm not saying it again. That was it. Well, Zoe, I love you so much. I love you more than I can even express. Oh, so. I'm just kidding. Love you all. Yes, love, love you. you all. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch. <laughs>